The following sermon was preached on August 1st, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Dr. Todd Bookner, pastor of Reedville Presbyterian Church, preached this sermon entitled Captured by His Majesty, Part 2, on Psalm 8. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. We return this evening to our text. You'll remember that we began to look at the 8th Psalm last week. We've identified the problem, our cultural uh, crisis, presently speaking, I had argued last week, is one of identity. We have stated that it doesn't take much for us to conclude or decide that ours truly is these days a culture bent toward sin. And namely the sin that is bent toward is the sin of self-identification. We truly are, have, have become a people who no longer know who they are. Men and women across the country and, and for that matter around the world are struggling to identify themselves, are wondering who they are why they're here. And as I said last week, this isn't a new problem for man, but it has taken on a new twist, I think, in, especially in, in concern with uh, decades past as we look at the question moving from our significance and worth and the self-esteem of man to one of really our identity, men wanting to be women, women desiring to men. And as I said last week, even at the cost of their own anatomy. We have a crisis, and that is an identity crisis. And as we've seen last week, Psalm 8 addresses this very issue. This issue of who man is, what he is, and the reason for his being. And I remind you that uh, Psalm 8 has four obvious parts, as we looked at last week, and each describes man in his place in the, in the created order of things as he establishes or reveals to us our fundamental purpose for being. Again, we have said that verses 1, 2, and 9 establish the majesty of God proper. And we looked at that in depth last week. Verses 3 through 4 establish the surpassing majesty of God in creation. And verses 5 through 8 establish the surpassing majesty of God and man redeemed. And again, the psalm concludes with the majesty of God proper. This evening, we'll conclude our study of this text, and I hope continue to build a solid identity biblically. Remember last week, I argued that the essential truths that I'm hoping to set before you and that you might indeed uh, hang your hat on are these. God's word alone unravels the mystery of man. God's word alone unravels the mystery of man, and we began to unpack that last week. Secondly, man redeemed in Christ is God's greatest instrument for praising him. We'll see that more clearly, I hope, this evening. Man redeemed in Christ is God's greatest instrument for praising him. 
Third and finally, understanding who and what you are depends on your relationship to Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Understanding who and what you are depends on your relationship to Jesus Christ, Son of Man and Son of God. And my hope remains the same as it did last week that by trusting in the God man we may know for certain who we are as men and women and experience the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises for us as we love and serve him and each other so far David in God's word here in verses 1 through 2 and verse 9 has moved us from self-identification by setting our identity within a cosmic framework. He's drawn our attention from a horizontal plane to a vertical plane. He has by falling on his knees and looking heavenward and being captured by the majesty of God, he's revealed that our identity lies without, with, it lies outside of ourselves. And I think that addresses the fundamental issue and the problem today. Men and women are seeking to identify themselves from within themselves according to their own desires, according to their own will, according to what they understand to be true. David in this psalm, if this psalm does, and I believe it does, address the issue of who man is, immediately takes our eyes from ourselves, off ourselves, and moves them heavenward, reminding us that if we truly want to know who we are, we should not look inside ourselves, but look Heaven word to the one who created us. And as I, again we see far too often today, our identity seems to come or desires to come from within. But David has, as we see in verses 1 through 9, done just that. He's moved and set our identity within a cosmic framework as he moves our eyes and our hearts from being toward ourselves heavenward to God. And that's really the principle. Men and women owe their identity to the one who is wholly outside and above themselves as individuals. Let me say that again. That's the, really the principle behind verses 1 and 2. The principles behind uh, verses 1 and 2 are, is just that. Men and women owe their identity to the one who is wholly outside and above themselves as individuals. We are, as we have seen last week, we're dependent creatures who have been designed to give proper praise and adoration to the majestic one. Our identity comes from without ourselves, namely from above, and we are indeed dependent creatures who have been designed to give proper praise and adoration to the majestic one who is our creator. This evening, let's continue to unpack this and seek to more clearly, if you will, identify who we are as men and women according to God's word. 
Next, I want you to note with me this truth. I want you to see the surpassing majesty of God in creation. Look at verses 3 and 4. Often this is given in an outline form as the insignificance of man. But I want us to consider it this evening as the surpassing majesty of God in creation. Let's look at it again, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Here we see the surpassing majesty of God in creation. And note that what's asserted here about man is his insignificance. His insignificance in the vast framework of creation. Now, creation, although only partially, because remember, we've already asserted that even the heavens can't contain the majesty of God. Creation can only partially reveal the majesty of God itself. Why? Because they point to the majestic one behind the creation, which is God himself. But they do reveal to us. The majesty, the creation does reveal to us the majesty of its creator. It reveals his existence, his wisdom, his power, and many other things. Now, I love what takes place here or transpires here in the text. David has been moved from this sense of all of the majestic wonder and beauty and gloriousness of God into this frame in which he's now considering that majesty and beauty of God the creator within creation itself. And it draws him to this question. It draws him to ask this question as he's undone or captured by the majesty of God. He asked, what is man that you were mindful of him. Now in the vast framework of creation itself, we are just specks, are we not? We're just part of a bigger created order of things. We're not all that significant, if you will. We're not all that great. One of the problems we have in our fallen state is we think we're a whole lot bigger and badder and better than we actually are, don't we? I don't run into too many people that don't think highly of themselves today. And you're going to say, well, wait a second. Who are you hanging out with? You need new friends. Well, we live in a world, as I said, that's bent culturally to sin. And the sin is bent towards these days is self-identification. And I find that you would have a hard time arguing with me about that. And the reason for that is the majority of the world today thinks it's pretty good. It's pretty good. We have no idea who we are anymore, but one thing we do know about ourselves is I'm not as bad as the other guy. I'm not as bad as her. I'm definitely not as bad as him. And we think a little bit more highly than of ourselves than we should. David here in this text, he's undone by the majesty of God, his creator. And he looks at creation itself and then he considers his, his place within the created order of things. And struck by the awe, the majesty and glory of God himself, he asks, What am I that you're even mindful of me in this vast, vast universe that you've created? Have you ever been struck by the majesty of God in that way in which you've really felt 
your insignificance? Have you ever been struck in that manner? Tell you a quick funny illustration to, to build on that point. I used to be terribly or terribly, shamefully afraid to fly. I mean, actually, looking back now, it was a sin how fearful I became when we were going to fly. And I need to put this in context. The first time we actually flew, we were leaving central Pennsylvania and flying to South Florida for me to attend seminary. And my wife set up our flight down and our girls were there and everybody was pretty happy. And I was white as this shirt I have on. And I spent the night before begging the Lord to quiet my heart, calm me down, and keep me on that plane. Every fiber in my being desired to not fly, to not be there. It was so bad, brothers and sisters, that when we were in line, literally, literally getting ready to walk out the door to board the plane, I jumped out of line and ran to the restroom and was physically sick. I didn't want to get on that plane. I had no desire to get on that plane. I ruined a shirt and couldn't get a new shirt to get on the plane. One thing I knew is I had to get on that plane, so I eventually did, but I got on there, got in my seat, pulled that little blind out, put my sunglasses on, put headphones on and focused in. Thought, don't move, don't move. Well, now I look like the Unabomber. So here comes the stewardess, right? Because I'm bunkered in my seat. I'm, I'm strapped in there for all I'm worth. We're, we didn't even move yet. And I'm white knuckling it. I have these sunglasses on, headphones on, and I'm barreled down in there thinking, just don't even think about it, don't even think about it, don't even think about it. Sir, are you okay? No. <laughs> My poor wife. He's a little nervous. He'll be all right. We, we need to get there. He's okay. We'll be all right. And I'm just panicking. We made it because I finished semer, seminary and all that. The rest is history. Fast forward with me and I want to prove or I want to illustrate the point I'm trying to make here. We had the trip of a lifetime plan. My wife saved nickels and pennies and dimes and all kinds of things for us to take it. We were going out to the state of Washington to see her brother who had been living there for, oh, at least at this point, 15 years. And we had never been out to see him, but it was one of my wife's desires and it was a trip we were gonna take. And for any of you who know anything about where Washington is, it's way on the other side of the country, right? It's a five-hour flight if you get a one-way, or not a one-way ticket, right? We weren't getting any layovers. I told her, listen, hon, if I get on a plane to Washington, you make sure when that plane lands, we're in Washington, because if it stops between here and Washington, I can't promise I'll get back on the plane. So we get on the plane and I'm doing the old thing. I got all my books and tapes and Alistair Begg all primed up on my, my phone because I'm going to listen to him and everything like this. And I'm trying to do everything I can to sit in a seatbelt, not move, not breathe for five hours. That's not a good start. And I hunker down and start playing and I listen to God's word and I listen specifically to Philippians, the fourth chapter. 
right? I listen to Beg talk about being fearful and anxious. And I'm convicted immediately of my own sin. With that, we're about two and a half hours into the flight, and everybody's ooing and on. Now, we're, high, we're so high up, there's ice on the wings. I didn't like that idea, but there is. 38,000 feet, we were, up, we were the highest on the, the chart that day. We were so high up, and everybody's ooing and on. And they're looking out the window. Now, mind you, I don't want to even see somebody else's window open, or, you know, the blind up. I don't want to look out there and see. That will just turn me upside down. Well, you got to look, Dad. You got to look, my daughter's saying. Now, I've been listening to God's word and being expounded. I've been reading everything I can just to calm down. We fly over the Rocky Mountains at 38,000 feet or so. I got to tell you, it's the most beautiful, majestic thing I ever saw in my life. And in that moment, I realized my lack of faith in the God who created all things, the majestic one, whose majesty can't even begin to be expressed in the top of the Rocky Mountains. And from that moment on, as I considered my own insignificance in the scheme of things and God's greatness and glory above those mountains, I get on a plane and off a plane like I get in and out of my car now. David was awestruck when he looked at creation and behind it, he saw the one who created it. And even though he felt insignificant in that moment, he realized that it was the one who created, the one who is so majestic that creation cannot even contain his beauty or glory. The one who stands behind it all, that one cares for even him. Look at it with me again. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Even though in the grand scheme of things and God's great plan of redemption throughout History itself, we are just a part of his marvelous, marvelous work. That God, the majestic one, cares for us, cares for you as an individual, is mindful of you. And when I was struck at 38,000 feet that God knew exactly where I was, what seat I was in, who was sitting beside me and who was flying that plane and exactly where we were on that map, all of a sudden the fear was gone. Recalling who I am, a son of the living God through Christ. And he cared for me. And he provided for me. And he quieted my heart. Have you ever been so captured by the beauty and majesty of God that you've just been undone in your very being? That's, in those moments, that's when you discover who you are. I got to go to the Grand Canyon. Lucas, I got to go to the Grand Canyon. I grew up in central Pennsylvania. Half my life, Western Pennsylvania, the other half, or vice versa, but it was both places. And 
And I always had a thing for cowboys. I always wanted to be a cowboy. I liked horses. There's no horse people in my family. They're all either play sports and they're working people. There was no horses, but I loved cowboys. Always wanted to be a cowboy. Always wanted to have a horse. Always wanted to do these things. See the out west. Dying to see the Grand Canyon. Dying to see it. Remembering my experience going to Washington. And how God revealed his majesty and beauty to me in creation. My wife again, God love her, <laughs> scrimped and saved for another vacation. Took me to the home of the cowboys. I went to Arizona, Sedona, and I was heading to the Grand Canyon. I'll tell you how undone I was to see the majesty of God, my creator, in his creation yet again. We're climbing and climbing and climbing and our ears are popping. We're chewing gum. We're climbing still. We're climbing still. Then all of a sudden it flattens out. And then we're driving, we're not going up anymore. It just flattens out. I'm so excited. I didn't want to say anything. It sounded like a little kid, but I was going to go see the Grand Canyon for the first time ever. I was so excited. Eventually, we're going at this plane for so long. I said, guys, where is it? And why did we stop going up? Let that wash over you. Where is the Grand Canyon? And aren't we going to go higher? Because I thought you had to keep going up, keep going up. The canyon, you look down in. My youngest daughter looks at me and goes, really, Dad, how many degrees do you have? How much schooling did you receive? Instruct? I said, hold on. You mean we're telling you it's like, then it dawned on me. We're just going to drive up. And it's going to be there. And I can look down on it. I'm not kidding you. I was so beside myself to actually see the Grand Canyon. I was all twisted up. Forgetting that I was going to have to look down at it. When we got there, I got out of the car. And I was weak in the knees. And again, I thought, you know what? I bet you God had a good giggle on the way when I on my way up this hill when I said, what are we doing, man? Are we going the wrong way? Shouldn't we still be going up? The canyon's got to be somewhere around here. No, no, no. You're going to look down on it. Beautiful. Majestic. And yet again, stop and pause. The second time in my life this has happened. And thought, God knows exactly where I am right now. And I'm standing in a place that has every hair on my body sticking straight out. But God knows I'm here. God knows exactly where I am. He knows what rock I'm standing on. And I'm beholding his majesty and beauty and creation. And at the same time, all oh, just gazing upon the one behind it. It's in those moments you find out who you are and what you are. Although we, got off, although we are insignificant. And, and at times we feel insignificant in the big scheme of things as we stand before things like redwood trees and we look at the Grand Canyon and other things. Know this, that even in the midst of all that, the psalmist makes sure that we understand that God does indeed, is indeed mindful of us and he does indeed care for you. Now, who are you? You're one that your creator is mindful of and cares for. Can it get any better than that, people? Can it get any better than that? Who am I? What am I? 
I'm one who my creator is mindful of, who knows where I am at any given moment, and he cares for me. And yet there's so much confusion. I need to move. Additionally, I want you to see the surpassing majesty of God and, and man redeemed. And we see this in verses five, uh, through five and six. Look at it with me. The surpassing majesty of man, of God in man, excuse me, redeemed. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, etc., etc., etc. Like last week, all good theology starts in the book of beginnings in the first three chapters. You can see how David is drawing back to Genesis, excuse me, 1 and 2 here. Clearly, can't you? David's drawing our attention back. And look at what we say. You have made him a little lower. Talking about man himself. You and me, we've been made a little lower than the angels. A little lower than the heavenly beings. I like that. I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Thomas Aquinas who was one of the first to suggest something like this. This suggests the mediating position of mankind. The mediating position of mankind. And I like that terminology because it ought to draw our attention toward the mediatorial kingship of Christ in Hebrews, which uses this passage, right, brothers? So I don't balk at that terminology, the mediating position of man, because we see it clearly. And I love what David does in this psalm. Remember, he's forcing our eyes heavenward for our identification. What a man that you are mindful of him, son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. The mediating position of man. We have this position in which the angels above us are spirits, but have no bodies. The beasts beneath us have bodies, but no spirits. Us who are in between have both body and spirit. Now, Aquinas was one of the first dichotomists, and we struggle with the debate today on whether is man two parts or three parts. I am of the camp that we are two parts. We are body and soul. And this psalm specifically addresses just that. We're told clearly here that we're placed in between the beast and a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. And I think David did that deliberately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He could have written, you are just a little bit above the beast. And then the heavenly beings are above you yet. And drawn our attention down, but he doesn't, does he? He draws our attention yet heavenward to show us that we don't identify ourselves. Our identity comes from outside ourselves, namely from the creator who created us in all things. Body and soul, spirit, and just body, the mediating position of your existence, yet again drawing your attention heavenward. I love that, especially in this age in which self-identification, man in his fallen state, continuously looks down and we see that as we become more and more like the beast we're looking at 
than the up towards the one who created us. Now, so we're in this state. We're created in the image of God, right? In the image of God, he made us male and female. And he gifted us and called us to specific responsibilities. And he said that we would rule and fill the earth and multiply, right? Look at what David does here. Again, alluding back to the early chapters of Genesis. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. He crowned him with glory and honor. First, David says, we've been crowned with glory and honor. Now, remember, he's already used that same word for glory to, uh, uh, in conjunction with God himself. You have set your glory above the heavens, David, David writes in verse 1. And now of man, he's writing, you've crowned him with glory and honor. This is what ties us to Genesis. This is what ties us to being created in the image of God. You are an image bearer of your creator. Your job is to reflect his image back to him. <laughs> Far too often, we think our job is that we reflect our image back to ourselves in a mirror and go, Ooh, we look pretty good, don't we? New suit. Yeah. Oh, I lost a couple pounds since last week. You didn't even notice. It's not true. We were created to reflect God's glory back to God himself. And we see that in the use of the word glory. Now we've been given responsibility. Look at verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. We're talking about the rule of the created being in the order of creation here. Your role, according to the word of God, is that you would rule. Right? That you would indeed rule over the beast of the field, this fish of the sea, etc., etc. Namely, intelligent being, right? It's a beautiful thing the psalmist does as he weaves this together. But again, our problem, and here's our problem. We look down far too often. And as we look down at the beast beneath us, we become more and more like them. We act more and more like those beneath us. Then we become more and more like the one who created us. So we're in this state, if you will. So what does God do? Now we need to go back to Hebrews 2 real quick. Go back to Hebrews 2 with me. We know what God does. What does God do? God sends his one and only son, the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from our willful ignorance as to our identity. To save us from our rebellion against his will for our identity. And he, Jesus the Christ, fulfills Psalm 8 as we never could in a fallen state. That's why the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 as he does in the second chapter of Hebrews as we, we read twice. He applies it to Jesus, saying that he was made a little lower than the angels. Why? To die for you and me because we spent too much time looking down. We took look down too often to identify ourselves. We fell. When Adam fell, amen? 
And with that, we began to look at the beast and become more and more like them. If you don't believe me, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, the fourth chapter, is a great example of what I'm trying to set before you for your own reading later. But he was made, we're told in Hebrews 2, a little lower than the angels in order to die for our sin. And that as a result, the father, in accordance with Hebrews chapter 2, crowned him with glory and honor. And he put everything under his feet, is added, right? And in putting everything under him, God left nothing subject to him. Now, as we're all aware, the fullness of that great destiny is still future. And we see this in how people struggle to identify themselves. But look at what happens when we fix our thoughts according to chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews. What happens when we fix our thoughts on Jesus and the reality of the mediatorial kingship as we saw in the larger catechism? Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, fulfills what's said in Psalm 8. What happens when we fix our thoughts on him? We're no longer looking down again, but as redeemed in Christ, as effectually called by the Spirit of God, as reborn, if you will, created anew, we no longer look down, but now we're, our eyes are drawn back up. It's in the redemption of Christ that our eyes are taken from the beast and returned to the glory and majesty of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The surpassing majesty of God. The surpassing majesty of God and man redeemed. His saving us. His redirecting our affections. As he works once again in us to grow us in Christ's likeness. So the psalm ends where it begins. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who are you? Only God's word can unravel the mystery of your identity. It asserts that you are created in the image of your creator. That you've been given unique and glorious responsibilities. That you are wholly dependent upon him and him alone. That is, your identity depends entirely upon your relationship to the God-man, Jesus Christ. It means that redeemed in Christ, you are God's greatest instrument of praise for praising him. It means that you may know for certain who you are and experience the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises in your life, whether man or woman. You see, it's only when man or woman gives proper praise to God that he or she fulfills the role in this world that God intended. And in so doing, he or she discovers who they truly are.
One way to avert an identity crisis is to be captured once again by the majesty of God. Do you know who you are? Look up. Stop looking on this plane at those around you and comparing yourselves to them or even the beast beneath you. Look up and behold the majesty of God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.